Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am speaking with Dr. Patrick Lockwood. Um, Patrick is a clinical psychologist. He's got a, doc a doctorate in psychology and I think you focus on addiction? Yes, that's one of my main specialties. And Patrick's also written a book called The Fear Problem and he has a YouTube channel called Psychology Checkup. Thanks for coming on, Patrick. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the chance to chat. Yeah, okay. I was interested in you. I saw a couple of interviews that you'd done, one with Benjamin Boyce and the other one with uh, Andrea Lynn. Mm -hmm. And then you know, your, your tweets kept coming up in my feed because other people I followed followed you. Uh, and I, and then it was, it was like you're kind of focusing on something I'm trying to work on too is like how to have a conversation about something that's difficult or just how to have a conversation without it devolving into, you know, name calling and stuff. Um, yeah. And so if you want to just go into like how you got into this, I mean, did it come out of your practice or if you want to take it from there? Sure. Yeah, I can. I'll do my best at least to try and explain how I think I got here. So what's been happening a lot in the last, I would say, five years in my world, at least, is I've been noticing that a number of people have been struggling with different very crucial topics like, for instance, you know, racism and hate and hate crimes and uh, how to deal with mental health and mental health stigma when a mass shooting happens and and all these different kind of very incendiary hot button topics that essentially people have narratives about and you kind of fall into one camp or another about it and there's really not much space for nuance. So as a result of just kind of associating with certain kinds of nuance oriented individuals, people like Benjamin Boyce and Andrea, etc. I've been able to start to unpack how to have more nuanced conversations about difficult topics. I mean, I got on Twitter, I think three months ago, four months ago at this point, and I've made fast friends with people like Benjamin and Andrea and Helen Pluckrose, and I'm, I'm working on being friends with James Lindsay, but he's a little hard to get into. So, you know, there's 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 people that I'm trying to associate with that really are interested in nuanced, um, open-minded ways of seeing things. And I, I come from a particularly kind of conservative Christian background, so I know exactly what it's like to have the certainty of a belief system that's fixed and that has certain fixed false beliefs, so to speak. And my goal is to help people have an open-minded perspective about whatever their beliefs are. And this is something I do in my clinical practice, and it's something I do with my consulting clients. And it's the goal of my book, is to help people have more open-minded discourse and have more thoughtful ways of approaching very, very nasty topics like, you know, greed and hate and homophobia and all sorts of difficult things that most of us either shy away from or just pick a narrative that's popular. Yeah, I mean, that's it's one of the things. Okay, I'm gonna give you a little bit of background and I want to just kind of tie that into um, one of the videos you've done. It was talking about uh, like being slow and not being slow as in like, you know, walking slowly or whatever, but I guess in some sense, yeah. But so I just want to tie that into it. Okay. So from yeah. 2002 um, till, so August of 2002 till March of 2014, I was overseas. I started working as a contractor with first with the Canadian military and then with NATO. So I worked in war zones. I was in wow. Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Sudan. Then I was in Haiti after the earthquake. Um, so I left before social media, really. You know, 
I don't even know if MySpace or Friendster was around in 2002, but, but around, <laughs> they don't count, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think the closest thing was ICQ. Uh, but anyways, and then I come back. And when, while I was overseas, on War Zones, they don't like you using social media. Uh, sure. When I first came out, there was a complete lockdown on it, and then slowly they opened up a little bit. But you were very careful about what you put on because you don't want to let people know where you are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I had no clue what was going on. Um, I come back in 2014. I'm just thinking, okay, I'm using Facebook the way I used it before to connect with friends around the world and this and that. And mm-hmm. I and I see the insanity and I'm seeing this stuff. And then, I mean, I saw it from a perspective of, um, you know, like Ayan Hirsi Ali being called a racist for speaking out against Islam, like same thing with Sam Harris. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, this Islam is a religion of peace and an all this double talk, and that's how I got into this. Mm-hmm. And then, but I've been I, like, like I said, when I left, things were more or less normal, or I guess we didn't have access to the crazy. And mm-hmm. then when I came back, it's all gone nuts. Yeah. Now, one of the things I thought of was, and this is like over the last four years since I've been back, or five years now, like I've just been kind of like, I, I was work. Well, after I got back, I was working up in northern Canada, so remote Inuit community, flying only, no road. So again, I was isolated. So wow. I had plenty of time. Um, I read. I watched as much as I could on this stuff. And I think one of the th- issues is what you're getting at there with the slow learning. Um, and I'm just going to give you a little, ramble a little more and then let you ha- take over. Like when you had the Industrial Revolution, you had things like, you know, uh, you know go forward then to Henry Ford doing the, uh, uh, the assembly line and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, innovation was for efficiency making things faster like yes it's better to have an automated plow than to plow your field by hand you know it's better to wash your clothes in a machine than to beat them against rocks Mm -hmm. but i think once the information age came up that was the same principle that was applied Mm -hmm. get information to people quicker not Mm -hmm. teach people how to parse it not Mm -hmm. teach people that you know just getting something that you want is not necessarily what you need. So, I, I mean, mm. like Google and YouTube and all that, all those things, like at the very start, they were driven more towards, maybe they had less content as well, but I mean, it, the algorithms weren't so tuned to what you want back then than they are now. And I think mm-hmm. that's where some of that slow thing needs to come in. We need to learn to not get an instant answer, not get like, oh yeah, what, you know, just a, a barroom trivia thing, right? Oh, I'll go on my phone and check Google. Mm-hmm. Isn't it more fun just to argue with your friends? <laughs> Typically, right? Yeah, but I mean, like that—that's yeah. that, where that's where I'm seeing this coming from. I don't know if I'm completely off base or. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely one of the things I cover in my book, and is one of the things I was talking about in that video you're referencing. Uh, it really is a very fascinating topic because. It really has broad uh, reaching implications. So if you take something as seemingly simple as YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, now for, for young people, you know, teenagers right now, et cetera, those are extremely simple things. But for people, you're in my age, it's, it's more of like this is a fascinating tool that we never really had access to when we were kids. So it's like this really intricate interconnection of things that we wouldn't imagine possible because I'm sure just like when you were younger – I didn't really know many people outside of my own town when I grew up in a small town in southern Missouri. Like, 
I had a town of like a few thousand people that I grew up with. And, you know, every time, anytime someone new came into town, I was like, oh, wow, there's someone new. But these kids nowadays have instantaneous access to thousands, if not millions of people that they have a no business knowing, not because they're bad people, just because like that's not how we're designed and B, um, now we have to keep up with all sorts of Joneses that we wouldn't naturally have to keep up with if this were 2001 or 2000 or even earlier than that. That's one of the cases that I make in my book. I, I talk about how, you know, if you really wanted to communicate with someone back in the day and you had to write a letter before there was even really like telegrams, mm -hmm. that letter took maybe a week or longer to get places depending yeah. upon yeah, how it, far away it was. And if it got there. And if it got there, right. But now, if you want to curse at someone in Afghanistan or Russia or Japan, you can. You don't. You don't have to. You don't have to. You know, wait at all. You can send a text. You can send an email. You can send a tweet. You can send a Snapchat. You can send a Vine. You can do all sorts of things instantaneous, and boom! All of a sudden, you now have created a hostile relationship. No problem. Yep. It's one of my favorite skits from the comedian Craig Ferguson. He talks about. Um, and I stole this from him when I was interviewing with Andrea, the idea that there are three questions you should always ask yourself before you say something. It's, does this need to be said? Does this need to be said by me? And does this need to be said by me now? And he goes into this very funny diatribe about, you know, back in the 1500s, you had to like get the parchment and make the paper and you have to like draw it all fancy and, you know, get the chicken's feather and get the blood and then draw the squirrely, scrolly F that's very pretty and fan, like, you know, Monty Python yeah. font, whatever. And then that's F and then Ucket or something like that comes after that. But it takes like a half an hour to write one sentence. You know, it's like things are dramatically different. And because we have instantaneous access to people, we are more easily hijacked into doing things we wouldn't naturally be able to do just by virtue of the fact that it took longer to do things. So we'd be more willing to give up on saying, screw it. And or it, screw you or whatever, right? I mean, and one thing I think, there was a, a song by Roger Waters called The Bravery of Being Out of Range. And that's what I think Twitter is or social media. Twitter more than you know, Facebook or something. It is that. It's the bravery of being out of range. You know, mm -hmm. you can say whatever you want. You know, granted there's Twitter mobs and stuff like that, but unless you take that really seriously, a Twitter mob doesn't really, you know, do much like obviously yes you can get plates banned from uh, macy's you can you know i mean yeah people have lost careers and stuff but i mean like physically mm -hmm. to yourself a twitter mob is not that kind of a threat right like so sure there is no consequence of you know anonymously calling someone an asshole right well the the thing there is I think the problem with a lot of social media, which I somewhat allude to in my book and in my conversation with at least Andrea, I don't think it was with Benjamin, um, is that we're very prestige oriented creatures just by by nature, by our instinctual process. You know, we are built and designed to want to either look up to people who have prestige and or figure out what game they're playing in order to kind of gain it ourselves. And if we see a famous person like the president or like Bill Maher or or you know, Hillary Clinton or, or any number of people just blaming politicians because there's the easy targets, right? But like if, if we see any prestigious person, whether you like them or not, they still have prestige because they're powerful and they're popular. Um, we're going to do what they do. 
monkey see monkey do is absolutely an inherent part of how we're built as mammals and no serious scientist denies that it's it's just a matter of do we really understand the nuances of how our instincts work and that's where the rubber meets the road with things like twitter although you can be an anonymous person and say any number of negative nasty things just like hillary clinton or bill maher or donald trump or lindsey graham or whatever you pick a person that's going to be reinforced in their mind automatically because it's exactly what their role models have been doing. And they're unintentional role models. And no one thinks that way. No one thinks I'm unintentionally about to say or do something that's going to have an impact on between, you know, 500 and 5 million people. Yeah. Right. And I mean, there's other little things too. Like I, okay. When I first came back from overseas, I, I, I concentrated a bit on the Islam thing. Um, mm -hmm. And that was just because, I mean, I worked in Afghanistan, I worked in Sudan, even Bosnia, you know, there's clashes between Bosnian Muslims and you know, the, mm -hmm. the Serbs and the Croats. So it, it played a part in all of those things. Um, but then you have, you know, I hate all these terms, like just call them the woke for lack of a better term. Um, yeah. You know, you have woke and then you have something like Antifa. And then I would do on on the on the right, I would say the same thing. You have like the red pilled, and then you have, you know, some guy who's willing to go into a church or a mosque or whatever and shoot up a bunch of people or go into a, a festival and shoot up a bunch of people because they're not white, right? Like a white supremacist, you know, KKK, Nazi, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And and, and like I don't think those two are things are analogous, but it's you know, then you have the a dogma from, you know, a Salafi Muslim or Orthodox Jew or a evangelical or, you know, the Dominion Christians or anything like you. It's um, something that uh, David Deutsch wrote in his book, The Beginning of Infinity. Mm -hmm. You know, he's talking about the static thinking versus the dynamic thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of maybe the issues of all this, not being able to take a step back, take a breath. You know, you're getting all this information. Um, I was speaking to a friend of mine recently uh, it's someone I met online, and they were talking about, and it was a there was a really good way to put it. Um, I hadn't thought about it that way. People now are, you know, everyone says, "Oh, kids are so tech savvy." They're mm. fluent. They're tech fluent, but they're not tech. Yeah. They're not tech literate. Like I mean, I'm yes. I'm fluent in Urdu, but I can't speak. I can't read or write it. You know, we need more tech fluent uh, uh, literacy than we need fluency. You need to know how it works, how it's going, and I think on the other end, not to force companies or whatever but google should be at least google you know we can work on youtube and all the rest but it's our mm -hmm. information store mm -hmm. it should like the algorithm should work differently and the way it should be set up too i, I mean this is just me but you log on to google and get a bunch of different tabs you get like science history you know biographies fiction whatever like you do it uh -huh. like that and you do a search for something and each of those tabs individually fills up so if you're doing a search for uh you know uh the, the code of chivalry and you want to read a novel about it, you can go to the fiction section, fiction tab and get it from there. I think we're, we've done ourselves a disservice by getting everything so quickly and expecting mm -hmm. the right answer to show up because that's mm -hmm. what we want mm -hmm. and not realizing what we're, what we want is not what necessarily what we need when it comes to research. Yeah. Uh, gosh. I mean, there's so much to say about that because on the one hand, it is phenomenal that we have instantaneous access to things that can help us live better lives. On the other hand, 
it is highly problematic that we solve problems quicker because we do need to take that second five seconds, 30 seconds, hour, day, however long to actually sit there and self-reflect of how do I actually want to approach this problem and what exactly is the problem? I think I, I would also pair your conversation about Deutsch's concepts with Kahneman's concepts of the fast and slow systems and systems one and two. And I would argue that it's a safe argument, I'm sure at this point, that, you know, most people are reacting and searching and researching using the fast system, the fast thinking system, if you want to call it, the reacting system, where the, which I would honestly describe as more of an instinctual process. I really would. I think if you were to categorize everything that I've been doing for the last couple of years on social media and um, Twitter and whatever with my book, my goal is really to help people become acquainted with their instincts and how they work automatically and unintentionally so that we can have more mastery over them. Because the problem is, I think we have an instinctual problem. We've created technology, we've created speed that hijacks our instincts, that confuses our instincts, that misleads our instincts. So if we have systems and we have ideas and beliefs that hijack our instincts, then guess what's going to happen? We're going to get more and more instinctual, more primitive, more reactionary, more aggressive, right? That, that's exactly what's going to happen because that is how we are designed. We are mammals first and foremost. And what we do is we make split second decisions about how to not die or how to deal with threat because that's like the number one thing our brain is geared towards is fighting threat most of the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually glad you brought up thinking fast and slow because um, I, I just read that uh, about four or five months ago. Really enjoyed, uh -huh. I really enjoyed that book. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that, that's another thing too. Like, I was joking about this on Twitter. I don't, I guess you've kind of noticed majority of my Twitter is just... I just, and it's only with people I know, like, or people I've interacted with. I, I don't do it to random strangers. Mm -hmm. It's just snark. Like, I, yeah. you know, and I, I find it so hard to have a meaningful conversation on there. And I know some people can do it in these long threads. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not cut out for it, but it's, I was sure. joking about it the other day. And it's like, we set up the algorithms to mimic our natural instinct for pattern seeking. And maybe that's, that was a huge mistake. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, like I mean, it's, I, I mean, it isn't, it isn't. Yeah. I mean, it, go ahead. Sorry. I, 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 my opinion is I think it, it's sort of a mistake because it's going to lead to more chaos and conflict and reactionary thinking or interacting. On the other hand, it's going to speed up the rate at which we identify problems and try to create solutions for things. So there's always kind of this double edged sword of it. The way we've sped things up has a lot of problems, but it's going to let the people who are paying attention and trying to fix things go, okay, this is the problem. This is how we can manage it better because we know that we're built like X, Y, and Z. That's my instinct. Yeah. I mean, I, but I also, and I mean, again, this is just yeah, me. And, and I, and I said this very tongue in cheek and I even put it with a caveat. Like this is a conspiracy theory, not, not real, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I think the inverse actually is, but you know, like I'm like, okay, they created the social media because they wanted the algorithms to get to know us so that they can create AI. But I'm thinking, okay, mm. they, they created social media, then they created the algorithms or tweaked them and kept making new ones to make social media better, quote unquote. And I think now they're using that data to maybe work or use that data to help 
in developing an AI because they've got all this information about us and how people think and how they mm -hmm. react. So I don't see why they wouldn't use it. I mean, I like I, I I don't think they actually did it for that purpose, but you know, it's an unintended consequence. I think, which oh, sure. which scares me a little, because I, I like I know it was a four chan hoax, but that Microsoft AI that went crazy, mm -hmm. you know, because a bunch of idiots from four chan just like interacted with it, you know, and turned it into a, a sex crazed Nazi in like twenty four hours. That's funny. You you hadn't heard about that. I have not heard about okay, that. Okay, uh, do a Google. It, Microsoft created this AI and they put it out on Twitter. 4chan got wind of it. And then a bunch of guys from 4chan went and they just flooded it. And within 24 hours, yeah, it was like sex crazed and a Nazi. And uh, it was hilarious what they did to this thing. Jeez. That's, that's funny. But I mean, a lot of people though saw that and they didn't know the... And I didn't know the backstory until someone told me just recently. And... Uh, I just assumed, okay, like, well, that just goes to prove like how toxic Twitter is because I, right. I just thought that the AI went on and that's what happened. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. I mean, what, if you get a bunch of people together with the, the same goal, you can achieve a lot of interesting things, right? Yeah. But I mean, that's like that. Again, I think it comes back to our innovation. Okay, if you want to do protein folding or, you know, uh, CERN, I remember when they were mm -hmm. talking about creating the, you know, because Google was going to CERN about data collection, data, uh, you know, information store and how to retrieve it and all that, because I think CERN was, it was the complete internet every day that they were storing, like that, that, that wow. amount of information. Now, okay, for a place like CERN, or if you're doing protein folding, you need information really quickly and you need yeah. to be able to parse it. Like Google and all these things, they're, they're making stuff, you know, all the algorithms, everything we get to search, everything that we do, mm -hmm. it's like it's trying to, you're not meeting a need like CERN. I mean, you might be mm -hmm. helping little Susie or little Billy figure out why the planets go around the sun. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need a search engine that can help or, you know, you don't need something based off of CERN. Like, I, I again, I think we, I think we need to take a step back. I, okay, I, I'm a huge person for science, a huge person. I've always said I want to know everything. Um, yeah. You know, but there's a difference between knowing everything and understanding it and just having uh, you know, a brain dump. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's... Uh, it's overload. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, how do you process it? Like, I don't, I don't think... Uh, sorry, I'm hogging all this, but I, I don't think that we have the capability to... Like, like, okay, the comes back to another one of your videos you did, like the censorship, or I think you've done a couple on them. Mm -hmm. I don't think the problem is censorship. Again, today I saw something about, okay, we should ban this. And I'm like, or no, should all journalists just get off Twitter? It's like, that's not the answer. The answer is, why don't we learn what Twitter's doing? Why don't you take a minute to step back? Why don't you just use Twitter for... Instead of using it as a news source, if you're a journalist, like use it just to, okay, I wrote this story, it's coming out. Or a friend of mine wrote this story, I thought it was really good. And that's all you should do it with. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the same thing with the search engines. I don't think we're teaching kids, like, I don't know how old you are. I'm pushing 50. You know, I learned how to use the library. I learned how to do research. I learned, mm -hmm. you know, are they teaching kids that about Google? Like, are they teaching them that the first thing that shows up is not necessarily the best thing that you want? You know, are they teaching kids how to parse information? I mean, it's a lot to ask for a grade school or a guest, but it's got to start somewhere. 
Right. And I think the optimal place for anyone is when they are in grade school is to start learning how to think. The whole job of schools, in my opinion, is to teach people how to think. I teach at the graduate level right now. And I, I have a lot of content that I can share with them, and that's fine and good. But as we've already discussed, they can get access to that content anytime, anywhere, and they don't need me for that. What I'm going to try and do is I'm going to try and teach them how to think about the content from the point of view as being a clinical psychologist or an academic. And I'm going to try and teach them how to synthesize and implement content in such a way that it helps them be better clinicians or whatever it is because I teach graduate psychology. So it, it, it's the job of teachers, in my opinion, to teach kids how to think and how to learn because those are two separate things too. To, to reflect and process versus to make meaning out of something are two extremely important but undervalued tasks that teachers are kind of doing automatically. And my instinct is that, back to the idea of how these platforms work, the Google and the Twitter and all these things, my instinct is very simple. The reason that the instantaneous way of relating has become so popular is because essentially if we all had our druthers, if you had, let's say, 15 phenomenal relationships, maybe a husband or a wife or boyfriend or girlfriend and family and close friends or coworkers, etc., and you were super close with all of them, essentially what you would want is you would want some sense of, I can have access, access to them at the drop of a hat, right? Because that's kind of how we're designed. We're designed to be close to people. Being close to people keeps us feeling safe. And it allows us to feel as if we're going to be okay in case, you know, the neighboring tribe comes over or, you know, a threat comes into the herd, whatever, whatever phrasing you want to use from the evolutionary psych perspective. So because we're kind of herd animals or tribe animals, you know, being close and being instantaneously connected with the people that are like us or in our tribe is extremely important. And guess what? If there's a platform that can provide us that sense of safety and security of, oh, my friend is right there we're going to want to use that and if they can make it quicker that's going to make us feel safer right so i propose that our safety mechanism in our brain our instinctual process with some affective processes are being hijacked by these technology platforms which makes us think less and react more and it makes us react more in such a way that we want to build closeness which might mean virtue signaling which might mean pandering which might mean going along with a herd opinion without thinking, if that makes sense. I don't know, because that's what builds closeness. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, and, you know, going back to a little bit what you're saying, like, you know, the tribes and stuff. And that's, you know, I get that too. I mean, you're in a group of, what, 15 to 20 maybe, you're coming out of the trees walking along the savannah. You mm -hmm. have to be able to let others know right away that, okay, there's a big cat coming to kill us or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So you want that instantaneous you want that closeness and i mean i i notice it myself uh i've got something urgent i know it's urgent mm -hmm. the person i'm sending it to doesn't know it's urgent you know and they don't, right. they don't reply to me in 15 minutes and i'm getting all worked up and it's like okay it's been 15 minutes you know it's right you know it's it's not like i'm bleeding out and i'm dying like it's it's you know like it's i can wait a little bit more than 15 minutes but i again i think we've we've got to learn to lower our expectations that it, right. You know, it's, and therein, I think w maybe 
I can't, I can't believe I'm about to say this. Maybe the fault was they knew too well going in about these things. And so maybe if they'd known just a little bit less and not geared it towards it. Well, you know, I'll share that with you. I, I don't know how far I can probably meet you halfway. Um, and I'll use the classic example in my profession in psychology, because if you've ever seen a billboard with a fast car, with a hot chick, with a juicy looking hamburger, you know where we got that idea to promote the most, let's say, salient and tasty looking thing comes from? It comes from John Watson, the famous behaviorist who used to torture little infants learning about and creating learning theory. Okay. There's the famous case of little Albert. I reference him in my book. Little Albert um, was this infant who he, he basically taught him to be afraid of a very cute, fuzzy little bunny. So he would pair a very loud noise because we all have a surprise instinct, right? Like, oh, shit, that's loud and it's scary and it's sudden. Yeah. We all have that from the moment we're born to the moment we die. So he basically taught to little Albert to associate loud, scary noise with white, fuzzy bunny. So every time after a, a series of successive uh, trials – now you could just show Albert the bunny and he would start crying as if there was a threatening, scary thing in the room. Fucker was insane. But he was also a genius because he learned how to essentially capitalize on our instincts and teach people how to want things or teach people how to avoid things. So he used to work as a consultant for different businesses and he helped them learn how to market. He helped them learn how to, let's say, capitalize on people's instincts to sell products better, like, well, sell this juicy thing. Make sure you put a, a, a hot broad on the top, on the like the box or whatever, etc. Use the right colors. It's and he was the kind of the founder of all this insanity that we now have with your Carl's Jr. ad for yeah. a hamburger and a hot chick, etc. Like it's it's all his fault essentially. Have would you, be the way it's, Have you heard about the Dunkin' Donuts ad campaign? And I think it's in South Korea. No, what is it? Okay, so they've teamed up with the transit in South Korea or in, in Seoul. Uh -huh. And so whenever the bus is about to stop at a stop that has a Dunkin Donuts near it, right by the exit, uh, it's spr a spritzer sprays the smell of Dunkin Donuts coffee. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and they put up little ads saying, Oh, you're getting off the bus. There's a Dunkin Donuts right here. <laughs> Oh, that's so, it's so brilliant. And it's so like 1984. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it was like, didn't they used to do that in department stores? They put in like a, you know, cinnamon cookies or something like that. When you walked in, sure. it was a nice welcoming smell. So you'd stay longer. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you just go to any perfume counter in a shopping mall, it's the same principle, you yeah. know, but the better yeah. it smells, the more you want to buy it. Yeah. Well, that's South Korea thing. When I saw that, it was, uh, it really made me laugh. I mean, I was just like, oh my God. And then there was a, a friend of mine um, started a recent podcast called Dilemma where they do um, tweaks on the trolley problem, basically. Oh, wow. And it's it's basically all moral philosophy. And, mm. and so they were talking about if this was right or wrong, mm. you know, where it comes from, like the rightness or the wrongness of Dunkin' Donuts doing this. But yeah, mm -hmm. it, was, it, was, it was pretty interesting. But yeah, when I like I said, when I saw that the first time, I was just, oh my God. Because it, it is brilliant, but I, I think that's illegal in North America, right? I'm not sure. I have no clue, honestly. But you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if something like that was already happening. I'm sure something like that's already happening. Well, they, here. they've done like they used to do subliminal ads because I remember hearing about this when I was younger. 
and then they banned them. They had done ads with a subliminal message in it for Coke and for some fast food chain. I don't know which one, so I don't want to name one. And it like a huge uptick in people buying Coke and people going to that fast food chain after those ads came out. And then they found out and they put a stop to that. Interesting. Well, I mean, the subliminal thing is a very fun kind of intellectual academic thing to debate. And I get to have a a fond remembrance right now. When I was an undergrad, uh, one of the research labs I worked in as an undergrad, my cognitive psych lab. And we we did some research, or I I helped with some research on uh, subliminal priming. And basically what they found was that there's a pretty clear cutoff for what we call subliminal priming, and that basically anything that we consider like subliminal is not actually having a real serious effect on our behavior and our decisions. Okay. So to the degree that it is subliminally presented, I think it, you'd have to like quibble about the like number of milliseconds that the image is on the screen or you hear the sound, etc. And for every sense, it's going to be different because every sense is geared differently in the brain for being important or salient, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, like I said, again, this was something I heard. I was in my late teens and I mm-hmm. heard it. So there's you know quite a haze of college days and whatever in there. So killed a lot, uh, yeah. killed a lot of brain cells between then and now. Um, I don't. So I'm not quite sure exactly, but like I said, it was, it, it was Coca-Cola and it was something else, and it was just uh, they they'd made a law because of that. But, oh sure. But okay, again, like with the with the advertising though. Yeah. It's almost like, to me, it seems that's that's what a lot of pundits are becoming now, yeah. not necessarily because of the pundits themselves, but because everyone's just taking that sound bite. So, I mean, I would watch Sam Harris stuff. I would, I would watch, you know, science, you know, like Lawrence Krauss or, mm-hmm. you know, any science communicator, things like that, or watch, you know, a discussion on philosophy, watch whatever. And then I would just hear people parroting that same stuff over and over mm-hmm. and over again. And yes, yeah. I've used quotes from all these people. Yeah. And, that's that's fine to do, but there was no original thought. It was like everyone was viewing everything like it was advertising. So, yeah. you know, you have people who say, I'm for free speech, and then they will throw off, they probably won't even throw off Milton or Mill because they haven't read that. They'll throw off something from, you know, Jordan Peterson about yeah. free speech or Ben Shapiro, and it's just a one-off little thing. And it's like, do you know what that means? Or right. take, take, you know, um, someone like Candace Owens, who I find, extremely toxic to the conversation and then take someone who is, you know, the, the mirror opposite of that, like the other side of the coin, like a, a you know, Robin D'Angelo or something, or take someone who is an acolyte of Robin D'Angelo, right? Like the white uh, fragility um, thing. They're just going to quote and, and they're just going to spout out these little things that they heard from their hero, quote unquote, you know, like, and they're yeah. not, there's no thought process going into it. There's no, mm. There's no self-reflection. There's, it's like you said, okay, yes, you want to sound like someone in your tribe. You want to sound like someone you admire and you're going to emulate them. So you're just going to quote off what they say and you're going to make yourself mm-hmm. sound intelligent. And I mean, I think we're, maybe we're mistaking knowing things for being intelligent. I mean, it helps to know things, like it helps knowing things to be intelligent, but a dearth of knowledge does not intelligence make, I don't think. Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, 
again, it goes back to the concept of prestige, right? At least in my mind, that's my first instinct is it goes back to prestige. If hundreds of thousands of years of evolution show that if we have more prestige-based behavior, we're more likely to more successfully survive and pass on our lineage and all that good stuff, then that is going to be the first thing that humans want to do, in my opinion. And that's because we live under this, what I would call it a delusion. And I've poked people like Heather Hang and Brett Weinstein from time to time on Twitter. And I get some responses, sometimes I don't. But I keep kind of pushing the the idea that we really are troglodytes. And, and thinking that we are more sophisticated than we are is actually causing us to, let's say, regress and be more primitive. Where if I think we would actually, and this seems very paradoxical, if we could actually own how primitive we are, then we might actually be able to advance more and become more sophisticated. And I know that sounds insane, and I understand that I'm kind of insane for thinking that. It just seems to be the case that when we really own where we're at, we can actually progress. If we don't own where we're at, we kind of regress. Well, I get I get 100% what you said. I said something similar in a lot, you know, slightly clumsier fashion. It was just, you know, we aren't smart enough or wise enough for the advancements that we have right now. Yes. Let's slow down and learn how to use what we're using. And it's not saying don't stop the bleeding edge, the, the cutting edge of technology and research. We need that. But, you know, the, the newest iPhone or the newest whatever doesn't need to be out six months after the technology comes out. Let's, let's learn what we've got now. I mean, do we really need a faster phone? You know, do, do, do you really need to be able to connect with someone that much quicker? You know, I understand for some people, like I've worked in very remote places where communication is incredibly important. Yeah. I can understand for that. You need better communication. But for the average person living in a city or even a small town, you don't need, you know, like I said, you don't need stuff that much faster. Um, oh, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I don't know if we can, if the genie's out of the bottle, is it too late? Like, I don't know if we can start to teach ourselves how to th- slow ourselves down i know you've done some work on like meditation mm-hmm. um, i used to do like going back to college and stuff i used to do a lot of mindfulness mm-hmm. and i know it's kind of useless the way i'm doing it now but every so often i might do it for a couple of weeks just to calm myself down and then i kind of get bored of it and stop and sure but yeah i mean like maybe we need something like that i don't know but we need to i think we totally need to slow ourselves down yeah no i couldn't agree more i that's why I made the video about being slow. It's why I made the video about why do we need to know stuff, right? I mean, I, I've made a number of videos that all kind of touch on this idea that we really are moving way beyond where we're designed to be, so to speak. And um, meditation is probably one tool or trick or gimmick to help people slow down. I think there are probably are a number of simple ways for people to slow down if they're actually interested in slowing down. And that's where we get to a serious problem and I mean problem not in like the oh my god the world's burning down sense more like in the if we're gonna try and fix this for people we have to be very very diligent in thinking about the problems that are going to get in the way the roadblocks and the biggest roadblock in my opinion is I don't think we live in cultures that positively reinforce being slow which means that if you're taught to be fast if you're taught to be instantaneous if you're taught to be smart right away and know stuff right away I cannot imagine Again, back to the prestige thing, I can't imagine the embarrassment you'd be willing to suffer to be slow, to be thoughtful and be like, eh, I'm going to look it up, I'm going to think about it, I'll get back to you tomorrow on Twitter. Like, 
I, I will pay the, <laughs> I will pay someone like a hundred bucks if they say that, right? Like it's insane. It's in, almost improbable that you could take any blue check mark or popular famous person and for them to say, let me get back to you tomorrow after I think about that and sleep on it. Yeah. Never going to happen. No. Never going to happen. Right. And that's the thing is, I don't know that we are in cultures that want to be slower. Now, what we could do in, in terms of a simple trick is start building grassroots movements. You know, grassroots movements work very, very well for a variety of issues. We see this in the political landscape all the time. We see it in the economic world all the time. You know, this is how a lot of, you know, giant businesses have existed or, or gotten started is by grassroots movements, you know. Yep. So the... I think that's a perfectly feasible method. It's just we'd have to have people organizing it and managing it so it would continue to go as opposed to die out, right? I've been slowly trying to build a consortium of people that are interested in a slower lifestyle, and that's why I keep having conversations with people like my friend Sebastian DeRosia up in um, up in Seattle and other people across the U.S. who just really are interested in a more mindful life, but. It's not an easy sell because it's not intuitive, number one. Number two, it doesn't have any prestige to it. So it really would take some very effortful conversation, whether it's through podcasts like this or through you know, movies or campaigns or events. Like I think events are probably the simplest way. And as, I'm, not even, I'm not a hippie by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, events really do seem to like get people together, whether it's a rally or if it's just a seminar or retreats. I mean, there's a reason why there are a bunch of mindfulness meditation retreats. Say what you want about the the, the literature on how efficacious it is. And I had that debate with uh, Bo Weingard and Matt Grawich earlier on Twitter last week. And there's d definitely some gaps in the literature about how effective it really is for certain clinical issues. But there's a reason those retreats sell a lot. There's a reason movies like, uh, what's that one movie where the person went over to like Tibet or something and lived there? Well, what was her name? Uh, was it like Yaya? I don't know. Oh, there, no, there's... The, the, the Yaya Sisterhood or something like that? Or Eat, Pray, Love. Eat, Pray, Love. I, I don't know, man. I don't watch it. It's something like that. Yeah, I don't watch many movies. But, you know, there's a reason that it has appeal. It's because people, and I do think people do know that they need to slow down and they need to get away from their kind of high stress, fast paced life. I really think we know that. I think it's just a matter of making that conversation more popular. I mean, I'm um, kind of sticking on that. Like, and it's, okay, I dabble, I, I've got a education background in political science and uh, public administration, but then, uh, I, then I ended up working in IT, so go figure. Um, yeah. But uh, just, I mean, because I, like I said, I wanted to know everything, so I dabbled in a lot of stuff. But it was something about, like, the smarter you are, the more play you need. Your, mm. your mind needs downtime. Mm. So, I mean, maybe focusing on the type of downtime we're getting. I mean, I've never been a huge person on video games. I always like the sports ones more than anything else. Mm -hmm. But, you know, is playing a fast-paced, you know, first-person shooter with all those lights and all those sounds... I mean, it's fun. It's adrenal. You know, your adrenaline is going. You know, if you're playing a racing game or whatever. But is that really the kind of downtime you need? Like, again, maybe it's just trying to reteach people or get people to figure out how to learn again that, you know, play or downtime or relaxation doesn't have to be excitement all the time. Again, it's, I think it's one of these things. We're we're 
We're always told, oh, this is the next big thi- thing. You want this thrill. You need this thrill. This mm-hmm. is the biggest, the loudest, the, 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 you know, the strongest, you know, new and improved, now even bigger, now, you know, now works better. Like, mm-hmm. instead of, okay, let's take things, you know, bring it back. Like, in certain things, yes, it does work. You want, you know, mm-hmm. if you can paint your house in an hour instead of it taking you two days, yeah, that, that's a good thing. But, yeah. you know, do you want that for everything else? I think we, a monoculture on this efficiency for everything, including what helps makes us relax. Oh, yeah, no, I think it's, it's a, a problem because not that video games are bad by any stretch of the imagination. It's just that to an extent, that is not how we're supposed to cooperate and how we're supposed to play, right? Like if you look at any other species on the planet that you would call mammal, they play through interactive, in-person, or face-to-face behavior. So rats have rough-and-tumble play, and they play from the moment they're born till the moment they die, but they play a little bit less as they get older, as they mate and whatever. But generally speaking, you know, rough-and-tumble play is kind of, in my opinion, from what I can tell from the ethology literature and from the um, affective neuroscience literature, that's kind of how we were built to play. We were built to do things like, I don't know, play sports, right? There is a reason that, and as much as I think that it is an egregious waste of our money, um, and I made that argument in my Super Bowl video and and a couple other videos, I think, um, it's an egregious waste of money that we spend millions, if not billions of dollars on professional sports teams and things like that. However... Those sports teams, basketball, football, baseball, weightlifting, other Olympics, all these different things, these are probably some of the most important and most valuable parts of human society because they're keeping us from destroying each other all day, every day. Because if we didn't have outlets for our quasi-aggressive instincts, for our competitive instincts, for our playful instincts, and again, play is supposed to satisfy all three of those things. Mild aggression, learning how you're better than or less than, how to compete, and how to have fun. We need that as a species. We are not special in that regard. And the fact that we have dozens of different types of sports, from lawn darts to football, we can actually satisfy a number of instincts that keep us from tearing each other apart unnecessarily. I know this is getting a little far afield from your like the psychology you do, but okay, play dates and things like that for little kids. Sure. Like, we're, it's like you're teaching kids to play. It's like no kids know how to play. Just you know, have one adult have them run around. If someone gets hurt, go help them. Don't mm-hmm. teach them to play. Like I think this maybe it's you know like starting way too like you're starting too young on this teaching them how to play like organized fun. It's like little kids know how to have fun. Put like five or six kids together in a sandbox and they'll have a blast. Right. Try to teach them what to do with the sand and they won't be as enthused. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always like to pull from popular media because I think that that's the most relatable thing for most people who would listen to this. So if you've ever watched television shows like... Um, I, I didn't watch, but when I was there, the popular show when I was young was something called Rugrats, another popular show um, that's, you know, you know, all ages is family guy, right? If you watch these shows, these different shows have 
a lot of unsupervised children playing with each other. Stewie goes to the playground and plays with a bunch of kids while Lois sits on the bench and smokes a cigarette or watches or whatever, right? Like all these things, we know that that's how things are supposed to be. And I think it's very rare. I hope I, hope, I have no clue because I don't know any of the literature on this. I don't know what the trends are and how people socialize their kids through play. I would hope that people would understand that, you know, the, the concept that is overly broad and definitely overly applied but seems to still have a lot of validity for these conversations is Vygotsky's zone of proximal development. We only need so much scaffolding and involvement from people in order to get to that next developmental stage. So if you're trying to learn a concept, if you're trying to learn how to play, if you're trying to learn how to walk, whatever, scaffolding is just the the kind of a little bit of involvement so that you can get past a, a challenging scenario that's maybe 10% outside of what you think you can handle. So for a play circumstance, that might be, you know, how do you handle one new kid in the group? Or how do you handle one new activity that day that you don't know how to normally do, right? Um, then, then the parent can be involved with that one new activity or the parent can be involved with introducing that one new kid, etc. But does the parent need to hover the entire time? Probably not. No, I'm not a developmental psychologist, so I don't want to speak outside of my uh, my wheelhouse, so to speak. But my basic understanding of the developmental psych literature is you can apply the concept of scaffolding rather kind of um, simplistically and rudimentarily so that people can raise their kids better. Now, it's going to vary from case to case to case and circumstance to circumstance. You know, it would, you and I would have to speak for hours and hours about different play scenarios and how much involvement, and then you'd have to know what kind of kid you got, what kind of temperament do they have, are they shy, are they not shy, all that stuff, you know, so it's a very nuanced conversation that is definitely worth having if you're a kindergarten teacher or a preschool teacher or someone who runs a daycare, very, very important to know, like, what your MO is for dealing with kids, because, you know, you have a lot to do with their success in the future. Yeah, I mean, okay, and... I was speaking to Lenore Skenazy uh, recently. She uh, she runs Let Grow. Okay. It, and she also does a blog called Free Range Kids. Basically, it's it's that. It's like helping kids get more independence. She's working with some schools where they'll do a project. So for the for one week, they'll assign little things for the, the children to do. You mm-hmm. know, and you're not talking like toddlers. Like they're about you know, nine or ten years old and a little bit over older, right? Like go to the store, get changed for $5 by yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a big deal, but, you know, or make toast in the morning, just yeah. little things to get kids, uh, more independence talking about, you know, like things like that with play. Uh, but just one thing you mentioned it cause it stuck in my head was the, with the animation, the peanuts. If you ever watch the peanuts, you mm-hmm. never once see an adult. I mean, the, right. the closest thing to the adult is the wah, wah, wah of the, of the teacher or the parent talking. Never yeah. once do you see an adult in the peanuts, you know? Yeah, and that's that's a double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, you certainly have them learning and growing and going through all sorts of extremely valuable developmental lessons in terms of how to cooperate, how to play with each other. But then on the one hand, you still have, um, is it, uh, who's the one who takes away the football every time? Lucy. Is that Lucy? Yeah, yeah. Lucy. So she is basically an unfettered dick the entire time. So on the one hand, it's great. On the other hand, I don't think Charlie Brown is actually learning how to deal with someone like Lucy. Now, it's not to say that, you know, we should be hover parents and go in there and, like, you know, really censure Lucy or something like that. But it, it would be great if Charlie could feel safe enough to go talk to a parent and be like, hey, what do I do when Lucy's like that to me? Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so it is definitely a good example of that. 
but there's always a downside, right? So it's, it's, it's that just right Goldilocks and the Three Bears, that just right amount of being there, right? And that's always going to be a context-dependent thing. And if you listen to another professional or psychologist who says they know definitively how much parenting is good, they're insane because it's so nuanced. Every kid is so different. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I, again, I think, and I'm just not to besmirch anyone, or, but I think not so much from the field, but from people who misrepresent the field. Yeah. Oh, this is what you need to do a par- to be a parent for all kids, or this is how we need to, um, <coughs> excuse me, advertise to people, right? Like this is, yeah. yeah, yes, generally you can kind of generalize in some things, but every kid is different. I mean, especially when they're developing, you don't want to, I don't think we can use one cookie cutter approach for everything. Obviously you have, you know, you're doing a public school or something like that. A teacher's got 20 kids. There's going to be some generalization, but the teacher should know enough. Okay. This kid needs this kind of help. That kid needs that kind of help. You know, they should be taught to, to seek that out or at least spot it. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think, I think we could do culture a world of good by simply just getting everyone to agree, basically speaking on first principles of healthy kids and kind of use the, the philosophical yeah. phrase, right? I mean, that's one of the problems that we see with this excess of information nowadays. And then you have the cultural relativists and all this stuff. It's, we can't really even agree on first principles, which is why when I, I, I don't remember how long, maybe it was last year, when Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson sat down for, I think, three different debates and just tried to get first principles agreed upon and then kind of steel man each other's arguments. That was very productive, comparatively speaking, even though they didn't achieve some magnanimous or genius conclusion, they were at least able to get some of the basics down, which it seems like we're not doing anymore, whether it's the basics in child development, the basics in conversation, the basics, the basics, as you say, in like parsing information, the basics are missing. Like this is why I've been so enamored with like, Zen Buddhism and things like that for the last couple of years because these are all philosophies that are literally focused on the basics of being a living creature. You know, I mean, it's, I mean lost. Yeah. Okay. The the first principles thing. Uh, this is just going a little far field, but I'm actually going back to like actually talk about like first principles in the in the philosophical sense. Yeah. Um, I'd been speaking to uh, a friend uh, Ryan Bennett, and we talked mm-hmm. about he came up with a. It's an idea that he had when he heard about the IDW for the first time. He said, okay, he thought of it as he, he's from a, uh, like I design communication systems and he's a web designer. So he was thinking mm-hmm. it from a software point of view. I was, when I heard it, I was trying to think it from a hardware point of view. Okay. But it was like a protocol. He was thinking of the IDW as a, as a protocol to initiate conversation. So if you know enough about IT, like the handshake. So when mm-hmm. you do the, when you, you initiate a conversation between two network nodes, it makes a handshake. And mm-hmm. it's like, so it was like thinking of that. I mean, he laid out these four, steps and it's not something to okay so if you and i were gonna have a talk it's not that we go through these four steps it's something that's the whole keep in your mind it was like you know define your terms agree on the disagreement so if you say racism is prejudice plus power and i say it's no it's just prejudice then we could agree that you know you're talking about systematic or systemic whereas i'm talking about individual right yeah. and we can agree on that disagreement and then go on and but then what i was saying to him was that there's an underlying thing before that um, it was like kind of like the, the prerequisite. So was what I had mentioned before, like you're just, you know, I'm just quoting Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, whoever, Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, just quoting them and not saying anything of any substance. Yeah. I think we ourselves need to go back and analyze what we think are first principles. And mm. I, think, I think you need to change how we look at first principles. Um, I used to use it all the time saying, oh yeah, free speech is the bedrock of everything else. And you know, th- these mm. are our foundational principles. Mm. And then especially after reading Deutsch and then reading something else. And I was thinking about it even before I read Deutsch, I'm like, okay, we don't have liberal conservative left, right anymore. We have authoritarian and we have libertarian for lack of a better word. And you know, not Gary Johnson, libertarian, but you know, yeah. um, but if you have that, your first principles, if you want to have a dynamic system set up to, to work best, it can't be a foundation. Like a dogma would be a foundational thing. I, I'm thinking we should think of our first principles like the earth of a garden. You think of the society as a garden. The found, mm. So your first principles are the, are the earth. You take care of that. You're, you're well aware that it can be washed away really sim, you know, very easily if you don't water it properly, if you don't take care of it. If the things, if uh, you know, you're proposing a new law and it's coming out, think of it as a plant coming out. If it fits in and it enriches what you're growing, great. If it doesn't, then it's a weed. It's got to go. So I don't think we've spent enough time recently, again, because we're going so fast and it's coming at us, go back and think what your first principles are. Like, what do you actually believe it? You know, I can spout out all I want that I believe in free speech. If I, but if I don't know that free speech is more about the person having the right to listen than me spouting my nonsense, I don't understand free speech. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. You know I, I, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, like, a conversation with ourselves. We might want to have that. Oh, absolutely. Self-reflection about what you believe and what you believe to be true and and fundamental and primal and important is something that most people do not do and something they just take for granted, which is why autopilot is probably the most dangerous way of functioning (laughs) for a human being, you know? Um, You know, for me, first principles, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this in my relatively short career um, and it's because of the work that I do with patients who have serious trauma issues serious drug use issues what is it at the end of the day that every creature needs to be emotionally regulated because I, I think that if we're emotionally regulated then we can feel unfettered to go do the things we need to do to keep up with the Joneses to get the car to get the job blah, 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 blah. so for me first principles comes down to what's going to regulate us so that we can go do right so that we can function effectively and functioning effectively is a very very kind of broad and nebulous thing are we talking about our physical health are we talking about our mental health and then there are some basic assumptions underneath both of those principles right so for me um you could you could slice and dice it based upon the concept of homeostasis so homeostasis should be the thing we're shooting for and our first principle should be follow any set of behaviors that allow for homeostasis to succeed in such a way that we always have adaptive outcomes. That's a very... Uh, can I just interrupt word. you for one second? Sorry. Yeah. Okay. If you just want to go through homeostasis, because a lot of people might hear that and just think stagnation. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so homeostasis is a, a term mostly propagated by medical literature to describe how a dynamic system like a body has a number of interlocking, interrelating parts that all function like an, like an engine, right? All the firing on all the cylinders, the valves opening and closing, and the gas being let out and the spark being ignited, all that, right? 
that's what the body is. It's this dynamic system with interrelated parts that have to flow and function in this kind of symphonic way where if all of a sudden there's this new thing that enters into your body, like a virus or a bacteria, then all of a sudden our body goes, oh, so there's this thing. We have to overreact with white cells and da 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 so things are thrown out of homeostasis. So we do everything we can to get back into homeostasis. So we sweat more, we get a fever so that we can get more out, da 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 so we can get back to homeostasis, which is that pre-virus, pre-bacterial state of being where there's not an excess of inflammation, not an excess of like buildup, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So homeostasis can be applied to the medical world, it can be applied to the mental health world because there's also a mental health, like a brain homeostasis. So, you know, for yeah, me- Yeah, so sorry, just one second. I just wanted you to do that because a lot of people hear it and think, oh, it just means that things don't change. And it, oh, no. it, it doesn't mean that. Yeah, no. it's to creating a stage to get back to a stable state, right? Absolutely. And and homeo you can develop a brand new homeostasis. That's literally what addiction is from the medical point of view. It is a homeostasis wherein the overactivation of your dopamine and your opiate system, etc., and then minimal activation of your withdrawal system in the brain are occurring. Whereas if you don't have the diagnosis of, you know, substance use disorders, you know, severe or whatever, um you don't have this overactivation of your seeking system. You don't have this overactivation of your care system. You don't have this underactivation of your withdrawal management system, like the extended amygdala and whatever. Like literally speaking, you can create a new homeostasis by changing behavior and habits, right? But it takes an excessive amount of effort or highly psychoactive substances and experiences like trauma or drugs or whatever. So my proposition would be Whatever the most adaptive homeostasis is for your health, your mental health, um, is probably going to be the thing we should focus on as a first principle. So one of my favorite authors is Dan Siegel from UCLA. And, it, you know, he talks about, you know, attachment a lot because attachment is supposedly, you know, the foundation of mental health and da da da, da. And that's a fair point of view. It, it's, it's been beaten up a lot in the literature, but it's a fair point of view. And there are kind of our three first principles he proposes that all creatures, mammals, humans need to feel safe, to feel seen, and to feel soothed. Those are three separate things, right? Because we can interact with people in such a way that we feel safe or unsafe. If you're paying attention, I tend to feel safe. If you're not paying attention, I tend to feel unsafe. If you are staring at me with like a nasty face, I feel kind of unsafe and vice versa. Right. We also need to feel seen like one of the fundamental needs from Freud's time upward. You know, Freud came up with the concept of like the exhibitionistic self. And, you know, that carried on to Kohut and other analysts and whatever. And we need to feel seen. There's literally no creature on the planet that does not need to feel seen. That goes back to the concept of prestige and whatnot, because the more we feel seen, the more we feel like we're connected, the more we feel connected, the more we can move throughout our culture, our tribe and, you know, adapt and move on and do things and, and be part of, being part of is a big part of being a mammal. So safe, seen, and soothed. Because when something bad is happening, we wanna make sure that we can get relief from the stress. Because if we feel like it's gonna go on forever, we might die, right? So being soothed is a fundamental part of any mammal's basic first principles. So safe, seen, and soothed, those are kind of his three S's, so to speak. And I, I hold on to those with my adult patients, with my teen patients, I hold on to those with Consulting clients, like whatever behavior you're doing, if it is allowing you to feel safe, seen, and soothed, great. If it's not, then there might be a bit of a problem there, yeah. right? 
Yeah, I mean, okay, again, this might come back to what Ryan was talking about, like de- defining stuff. Because I'm, I understand where you're coming from, and I was just bringing up the first principles things because I was talking more of like if you want to build, you know, if you're trying to build, try, talk about building a society or a political system or something like that, what are the first principles of that? Like, you know, and so, yeah, I kind of just went off a tangent on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, for me, it would be something as simple as make sure that your society is designed in such a way that you are satisfying your basic instinctual process that's adaptive. Now, that's broad, but yeah. that would be my, my go-to. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, like, like I said, I was, I was, I just brought up my little thing, like thinking of like first principles as the, the garden. Like, I, I know you're coming from a, like, what are the first principles when you want to treat someone as opposed to what are the first principles when you want to fix a car are two different things, right? I mean, right. the, the end goal is to fix, but you're going to go about them two separate ways, right? Oh, absolutely, because yeah. those are different circumstances, yeah, widely yeah. different circumstances. Yeah. But if you want to create a society, I would, I, would, I would promote the idea of creating a society that's fully informed by how we're built and how we're designed to work. It doesn't make much sense to me to just keep doing all these like higher-level metacognitive things like thinking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and, and free speech. Like These are all wonderful ideas to think about, but they are so high up, and they miss or they are not necessarily fully accounted for by our primitive instinctual processes and what we all need. So my proposition is we get simpler before yeah. we get complex. That's okay, but catch-22 then. If you don't have a system that allows free inquiry and someone to do their research, how are you going to find out what we truly need? Great question, <laughs> right? So at some point we have to give. Yeah, Right. So someone has to give and go, I'm willing to let such and such happen. Right. Yeah. 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 No, it, it's tough. It's tough being alive. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I, it's, there's no easy <laughs> answers. And I, again, this is the going back. Like, that's why I, I, I don't focus on it. But I watched a few of your things and I really like that video on being slow. It's like, again, the instant answer. Like, why mm-hmm. is this fixed? I, I, OK, so I worked in Haiti after the earthquake. Mm-hmm. And then there was presidential elections while I was there. There was mm-hmm. a local rapper. Uh, his last name was Martelli. I can't remember his first name. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone called him Tet Kale. It was a, a Creole saying for shaved head because he had a he had a, he had a shaved head. Right? He was a oh. head. Well, it was basically that's just what it meant. Um, he won, and one of the things that he said he was going to do was okay. There, there was so much stuff that needed help fixing, but he was like, okay, we're going to help our citizens uh, get along, get better. We're going to you know offer them education and to help mm-hmm. do this we're going to start getting laptops to people so that they can, we'll set up stuff where they can get information online. sounds like a great idea. He won. The people loved him because he was from the people. He wasn't part of the political class, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. huge celebrations for a week after he wins within a month after he wins, there's riots because people haven't got their laptops yet. Wow. Okay. Now, you know, it might take a little bit more than a month to get the entire population of Haiti laptops. Possibly. Yeah. But that's what I mean. Like it's instantaneous. Like why, where we're so used to clicking on Google, you know, you you make an order off whatever Uber eats or skip the dishes or whatever. Like, and Oh my God, it's taken me 35 minutes on the little thing. It told me it's going to take 25. Like, where is it? I Mm -hmm. want it now. It's Mm -hmm. okay. I'm guilty of all these things, right? You know, like, right. I, and, but you have to realize it in yourself. Like, okay, yes, I, 
I'm diabetic. Sometimes I do stupid things let my sugar go way too low mm-hmm. and I get cranky because I don't have my food and I'm freaking out because it hasn't shown up yet because I was too lazy to have gone to the store. But, but yeah, okay. Once in a while, it's understandable. I think, but again, I don't know if I'm just beating a dead horse, but I, like, how do you, how do we train ourselves to want to slow down? Like not just how do you not train ourselves to slow down, but just to want to slow down. I think we need to make it sexy. Honestly, I think um, I think that the more we can do to give prestige to people who are slow, who are intentional, etc., the better. Because right now we place prestige on people who are not slow, who are rageful, reactionary, whatever, and. Mm-hmm. I think if you really want to do have a more, let's say, rapid uptake of the idea, it's making it sexy when, you know, Thich Nahan says something, you know, profound or the Dalai Lama says something profound, like giving that a bigger signal on Twitter than when uh, Donald Trump or Tommy Lee says something on Twitter. Like, if only we could make the Dalai Lama trend as opposed to you know donald trump right like it would be phenomenal if we can make slow sexy the yeah. problem is again it's, it's just it's not obvious that that should be sexy to us yeah. well we should we should uh, look for 15 minutes of wisdom not 15 minutes of outrage right <laughs> yeah that's totally and that's that's why one of the things i i recommend in my book is mindfulness meditation and, and exposing yourself to new viewpoints because if you just if you spend yourself, uh, you spend 15 minutes on yourself in a given week just listening to someone you don't agree with or something you never thought about, at the very least, you have slowed yourself down and forced yourself to think about something else as opposed to your automatic pilot way of being. And that's not what we're accustomed to. We are accustomed to doing what we like, what we're habitually doing. So the more we break habits, the more intentional we have to be. The more we let habits stay, the less intentional we have to be, the more kind of, let's say, fear-driven reactionary we become. So habit-breaking should be sexy, you know. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take up too, too much of your time. Um, thank you very much. I know I, I'll give you a chance to talk about whatever you want, push anything, but I, I recently you were tweeting out, which I think is is awesome, the buying books for kids. So, yeah. if, I mean, I don't, but if you want to talk about anything or anything you're going on, if you want to plug that, go right ahead. Sure. So you can get the fear problem on Amazon or at my uh, my website, uh, patrickblackwoodhealing.com. And the Give a Book Project. This is a little interesting. I'm going to take just two minutes to say a little something here. So the Give a Book Project started with a couple of students on Twitter, like college-age students, who just needed some books because you wrote college student. So I was like, okay, I'll help you out because I, I want to make sure that you can learn because, you know, I support where you're going and I think you're a thoughtful person. You know, I want to make sure you can learn. So I created the Give a Book Project on a whim, basically just to help, you know, on a, on a one-to-one basis, I could help one person get a book if they needed it for college or for, you know, their recovery or something like that. What ended up happening was I saw this tweet from, I think it's Bill Pult on Twitter, and he's a f- kind of philanthropist guy, and he was talking about how he was going to help some school teachers. So I said, you know what, I'm going to toss my hat in the ring here. I doubt anyone's going to take me seriously. And it's not going to be a big deal. I probably get like one or two responses and I'll, you know, get some school teachers some books. 
What ended up happening was, for all of last night and this morning, I have been getting request after request after request, Amazon wish list after one after another, from teachers all over the United States of every grade level, from kindergarten and pre-K up to like 11th grade, asking for books. And I, I spent two grand of my own money basically last night getting people, and I'm like, I can't do this much longer. I'm going to be broke for the rest of my life. So um, I started asking people to you know, donate because it's I just can't do all. I think I have currently 36 teachers who are asking for books right now. And the number of books that they're asking for is probably somewhere up in the five to ten thousand dollar range. So I don't quite have that offhand right now. Yeah, um, yeah. I could liquidate some stocks and stuff and, and take off a chunk of it, but uh, I also don't want to like be broke and homeless. So uh, if anyone who's listening to this can donate to the Give a Book Project, it's the hashtag I use on Twitter, and you can find it on my website, patrickbachwithealing.com. Um, that would be phenomenal because I, I want kids to be able to learn. It didn't start out with as a kids-focused project, but it became that, and that's perfectly fine. Okay, I mean, touching on that, just because <laughs> here's, this is great what you're doing. And I mean, like I, a friend of mine does something called, um, he, he started an organization called Ideas Beyond Borders. Uh, and what they do is they translate science and philosophy books and make them available for free. Uh, they translate them into Arabic and make them available for free in the Middle East. Nice. Online. Uh, so they, they've done some Sam Harris stuff, Stephen Pinker's. They've translated every Wikipedia article on evolution into Arabic and made that available. So wow. I mean, like things like this, like I'm I don't I'm not a parent. I have nieces and nephews. My friends have kids. I I'm looking at this in a very selfish way. These are the people that are going to be making the policy that decides my old age pension. So <laughs> I want them to know stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like I, and so right. you know, helping kids learn. Um, but the the pro the amount of teachers that you said you got in just one night. There's a problem there. It's not that yes. they, they, you know, it's okay. Oh, these are just poor kids who don't have. There shouldn't be that many teachers. You know, a cup. Yes, there's poor neighborhoods, and there's you know, but it shouldn't be that many teachers for. I mean, like how many? You you don't have like tens of thousands of followers or anything on Twitter, mm -hmm. and for you to get that many that quickly, yeah, right. Like imagine if you had ten times the number of followers, how many would you have gotten? Oh, I, I probably would be inundated and unable to open my Twitter, essentially. Right. But I mean, yeah. I, I think it's, you know, maybe it's a sad note to end on, but it's, 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 it's a horrible problem that the people who need it the most, and I, maybe, again, this is part, going back to what we're talking about, I've, I find a lot of the solutions I see, like Bernie saying, oh, free college and this and that, all the solutions seem to be, what should we do to fix it once they reach college age? It's like... Mm -hmm. It's too late. You've lost the plot at that point. Like, yeah, help, help should be coming earlier. What Wait, do you think? Yeah. Anyways, like I said, I, I don't want to end on too much of a sad note because I think we did have a, uh, you know, a, a good conversation to begin with. Um, but yeah, thank you very much again. I'll put all the links in. If you have any link or anything like that you want to send to me, uh, let me know. Um, message them to me. I'll put them in the description. Thank you right again, on. and of thank course. everyone for listening. Absolutely. Thanks, guys.